Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, my friends. It is Wednesday, July 22nd, 2020. It is hump day, everyone, and I am your host, Scott Fullerton. My interns have the night off this evening working on other assignments. Hope you guys are having a great midway through the week here and ready for the downhill slide into the weekend. Guys, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate it as always. If you missed last night's show, you missed a good one. We had our brand new special correspondent call in, Mr. David Reddish. We are so lucky to have him. David is the entertainment editor at the website Queerity that handles all sorts of aggregative information of breaking news of LGBTQ entertainment and news stories. So David will be with us every other Tuesday from here on out. And we are so honored to have him as part of it. So we had him on last night and then our good buddy to the show, Stan Zimmerman was on. Stan, as you know, is amazing writer, director, responsible for the Golden Girls, the Gilmore Girls, Roseanne, the Barry Brady movies, not responsible solely, but he wrote for all those great shows. He has a great play this weekend, Knife to the Heart, that's making money for Save the Children organization. And then with Wendy Malick, if you don't know who Wendy Malick is, just shoot me with David Spade, hilarious, hot in Cleveland with Betty White. She is an amazing actress. And then we had on for my second interview of the evening, Harry Lopez. He's a success coach and an entrepreneur out of LA. He's formed his own Latinx Entrepreneur Academy. And just an amazing guy, so positive, so cool. So it was a great show last night. If you missed it, go check out your favorite podcast distributor. You will find us there. And while you're there, hit the little subscribe button. You can never miss an episode. It'll tell you who we have on every night that we're on, and you can decide to listen or not. And if you do decide to listen, please give it a five-star rating. Let us know how it was. So we can get that out in search engines and the ranks will go a little higher and people can find us more. I appreciate that immensely. 
So that was last night. Tonight, another great show for you. In just a couple minutes, we're going to bring on everybody's favorite, Josh and Jeff, the J&J Buzz Boys. They do our Wednesday, Wednesday pop culture segment every week. They are fiancés, cutest button, and so cool, and always give us some great information each week, usually from their home in Nashville, Tennessee. Today they are doing scouting for their wedding down in Florida, so they're doing a live report from Florida. So we'll have them on in just a couple seconds. Then after that, I'll have two great interviews for you tonight. Coming up first, Ryan Ballas, straight ally, cool guy, filmmaker extraordinaire, has two different production companies. One, uh, Robel Films, where he does a lot of different dramas and television shows and music videos. And then he has the Ballas Brothers, which with his brother and another partner that does foodie stuff. Oh, my God, they make the best foodie content around. So we're going to have a great conversation with Ryan coming up in just a little bit. Then we're going to close out the show tonight with an amazing interview with Lindsay Amer. Lindsay created a program called Queer Kids Stuff. It's a web series that teaches younger kids what it means to be gay and does it in a non-threatening, non-patronizing way with her stuffed animal from childhood, Teddy. And uh, Lindsay's just an amazing conversation. It goes by they, them, and I said she already, so I got it. My pronouns is a real problem for me, guys. Uh, It's happened many times here. So I apologize to Lindsay, but uh, they will be on in just a little bit. So we will have that great interview after Ryan's today. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Oh, by the way, you might be seeing on social media that I'm going to be starting a brand new political podcast next week. It's going to be different than Left to Straight Show and not offered on here. But if you're a politic buff like you know I am, I don't want to bring it on to the entertainment show here. So we are starting a new podcast on Monday that's going to go through the election, Monday through Friday. We don't have a name yet. We think it's going to be called The Last 100 Days because as of Sunday, it's exactly 100 days till the election. And you know how I feel about that, but we're going to be starting a new podcast. Look for that. I'll be sending it on social media. But let's jump into it. Let's talk to our boys from Florida today, not from Nashville, Josh and Jeff, J&J Buzz. Let's see what's happening in pop culture today. Gentlemen, talk to us. What's going on? You are listening to Josh and Jeff on J&J Buzz. Exclusively on Left of Straight Radio Network. Now, live from Nashville, Tennessee, here's Josh and Jeff. What up, y'all? Hey, guys. I mean, we're kind of excited to be here. The little intro dude that introduced us. He needs to say live from Naples, Florida. (laughs) Yeah, from Vanderbilt Beach. Uh, Not from Nashville, because this week we are on vacay. Okay. (laughs) Living it up. Living our best life down here. 
I will tell you that uh, this is really funny. We walked into this hotel, and what what did you think about the hotel? I, it was real nice. <laughs> it is real nice. Yeah. And uh, last time we stayed at a hotel, maybe the hotel wasn't as nice as like I would like it to be. Not to like tell you exactly that it was something similar to a bull tree. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it rhymes with that Ubble Tree Hotel, that's the old one that we went to, and he said it was nice, and it was not nice. Well, this is a resort. So this, that is right. <laughs> you deserve a resort. Okay, so did you know that young gay guys are having sex way earlier than straight guys? What? <laughs> Study showed 19% before the age of 13. Meanwhile, the median range for the same sex sexual encounter is 14 and a half okay starting off young yeah okay so gays are the younger gays are having sex at like earlier than the straight dudes yes oh way earlier i wonder why that is did it say a couple years earlier um it didn't why do you think that is well i you know i think it is because most most gay guys look so so good yeah exactly Goodness. Okay, well, that was good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how you, like, follow that up. That was a hard story for me to even comment on. I mean, we do. Yeah, we do. But we're old enough to have... Anyway, we're ca- we came down here, just so y'all know, to Vanderbilt Beach because we got to plan the wedding now because it's, like, in six, six, six months. months. It's crazy. Uh, so, champion college athlete Martin Herkman's He came out in an empowering post on social media. He's the 22-year-old Dutch rower, currently studying at the University of California, Berkeley, as a student athlete. Did you see this? Yes. Uh, Why did you just smile when I said, did you see? (laughs) You're like, yes, I did. Yeah, I mean, he is cute. Uh, He just came out as bi on Instagram. He hails from the Netherlands, but he made the post in a way of showing that men do not compromise their masculinity uh, by coming out as queer, which is kind of interesting. He says, quote, does not make you less masculine or able to compete and win. In the end, we all line up at the same starting line with the same anticipation as we endure those final minutes before the start, equally tense and ready for the green light, end quote. I mean, he is a, a, definitely a rider, and he's a rower on the elite level, and he's cute. I say I'm glad to have him in the family, don't you think? Okay, it definitely does not make you... Any different. What do you, uh, le- like, more, more less, less than or something. Yeah. And who cares? Like, masculine terms are, like, it's kind of a dumb thing to even think about. You know what I mean? Like, who cares? People just be yourselves. Be you. Be okay. you. And it's cute. Okay, last one. Got. And Russia, President Putin promised a crackdown on LGBTQ, no same-sex marriage, same-sex adoption. The U.S. Embassy flew a pride flag during election, and Trump has now forbidden flying any flag outside of the United States. What? Yes. <laughs> Russia? I mean, I I ain't trying to talk about nobody over there, Russia, but y'all are so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so great because you ain't ain't doing it for us. I don't know. I, told me I'm not going to... Yeah, I'm not... Nothing nice to say. Yeah, Putin sounds like he just <laughs> pooted. <laughs> okay, anyway, guys, we got to go from right. Vanderbilt Beach. Yes. I will see you later. You guys have a good week because we're going to have a great week. Yep, I'm Josh. And I'm Jeff. And you've been listening to J&J Buzz. This was J&J Buzz, exclusively on Left of Straight Radio Network. 
Thank you, boys. Enjoy your vacation, and good luck getting that wedding planned. All right, guys, let's jump into it tonight. Two amazing interviews with two great people. Coming up first, in just a couple seconds, we're going to do Ryan Bayless again, filmmaker extraordinaire. He is a writer, a director, an actor, a cinematographer. Oh, my God, I love the look of all of his films. So we'll be talking to him first. And then coming up to the end, we're going to talk to Lindsay Amer. They are a amazing content creator for LGBT uh, education for children and put together an amazing program. So we'll be talking to they very shortly. So let's get this started. We'll play a little bit of music. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Ryan on the other side. And then we'll have a little more music and talk to Lindsay. And then I'll be back to wrap it up live at the end here. So you're listening to Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Enjoy the interviews, guys. Give me all you have, but I'm still breathing. But I'll hold on to the end. We can fight Gonna hold on tight until the end But a mountain stands up on my chest And I'm tired of shallow breath We can fight on night but I'm still breathing Where the road ends, where the sun lives All we need 
Alrighty, guys, we are back, and that was Fly by Unsung Lily. And speaking of flying, my next guest is Flying High, man. He was brought to my attention by our good friend Matt Kai Burmaster, who we had on a couple weeks ago. He is a writer, director, actor, and fellow foodie, and a fantastic ally to the LGBTQ community who's won awards for cinematography, created some of the most mouthwatering foodie videos on the planet, and was even part of an early YouTube web series that garnered over 20 million views. He's a Midwesterner living in the Big Apple, where he co-founded his independent film company, Robel Films. How do I pronounce that? Uh, Robel. Robel, thank you. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Where he co-founded his independent film company, Robel Films, with his wife and brother. I can't wait to get to know him a bit more with all of you, so please welcome to the Leftist Trade Show for the very first time, Mr. Ryan Bayless. Ryan, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. This is so nice. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's great getting to know you. I've been loving every second of my research on you. You've made some amazing work yourself, and I'm a huge foodie, and I, you made my mouth water on that part as well. So <laughs> we're going to talk about all of that. Well, how are you holding up in this wild and wacky 2020 so far, my new friend? Ah, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm holding up okay. I think 2020 is one of these weird, weird, weird years that we're all going to remember. It kind of feels like... I, you know, I never lived really, I mean, we've, we've sort of lived, been living in perpetual war, but I've never lived through a, a wartime traditionally, I suppose, like maybe our grandparents right. did. And so I kind of feel like we're, you know, we're growing victory gardens and we're, uh, you know, there's protests in the streets. It feels like we're, we're living in some sort of strange timeline and uh, kind of deeply connected to the 60s and stuff. So uh, all that aside, I, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling super creative. I, I think that uh, for whatever reason, my brain goes to uh, creating things when it's in times of strife and tough times. And so I'm kind of in that place right now, trying to just stay super positive and, 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 you know, whatever small part I can do to make the world a better place, I'm trying my best to do it. That is awesome. I don't know how you can get much more creative. You have your fingers in the <laughs> pies of so many things. I'm so impressed with all the work you've done. Oh, thank Let's you. Let's start about a little background, though. Talk to me about these sure. Midwestern roots. Where were you uh, from, and what kind of a kid were you growing up? You got it. Uh, well, I was a hyperactive kid. I was born in Indiana. And uh, I spent about half my childhood there and then another half uh, in Michigan. My father's an engineer, so we moved around a little bit. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I think I'm more naturally pretty polite as a result. But otherwise, I'm, I'm curious. And uh, I, was a, I was a strange kid. I definitely loved playing dress up, putting on uh, – I had all girl cousins, loved dressing up in their clothes. Um, I, uh, you know, I was just always interested in sort of over-the-top theatrics. I was, uh, uh, from day one, obsessed with I – I would never say that I'm obsessed with movies, but I'm obsessed with filmmaking, obsessed with, uh, to some extent, storytelling, but I think of the work that I do a little bit more uh, poetically, I guess. Um, but, you know, I was, I was a, a good, polite, nice kid for the most part. Didn't get into a lot of trouble. Didn't really drink or try drugs until I was a little older, uh, at least out of <laughs> high school. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I had a really, I had a really great childhood, po like full of 
of of playing pretend. I'm I'm currently I'm I'm I moved studios, so I'm I'm moving out of my New York City space into a space uh, upstate, and I for the first time in my adult life, I'm sort of getting rid of my costume box, which is kind of strange. But like I realized like, throughout my whole my whole life, I had this this costume box of some sort, you know, with with different things. And I don't know. Whenever I'm I'm kind of uh, in need of inspiration, I, I kind of like dive in and see what strange wigs or masks or, you know, and, you, you know, that kind of thing is available. And for whatever reason, that starts to spark stuff. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've been playing pretend for most of my life. I absolutely love that. Congratulations on the new space. That's going to be <laughs> kind of exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, we're just we're really just. It's it's a rare thing to be able to kind of keep building your own company right now, your own production company, and and trying to be forward thinking and and as you mentioned, you know, I am a bit of a foodie and and make I'm I'm proud to say food pornographer. Uh, it's the only kind of pornographer that I think my mother can <laughs> brag about, uh, <laughs> or or at least enjoys to brag about. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're able to, we've basically set up a, a studio to focus on making food porn. So, uh, feel very lucky to kind of keep moving forward in that way, just because, uh, food doesn't require, well, bringing in food talent doesn't require too many masks. There you go. And foodie never goes out of style. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to give up food. So that's a good thing. That's right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Comedy drama may come and go, but food is constant <laughs> in our lives. I like it. Uh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And as I said, you're an amazing ally of the community. You've done some great film work in all sorts of universal themes. Um, is it really just the project that it, what attracts you to these different projects and uh, kind of gets your blood going when you find a new project to work on? What are you looking for in a script or is it uh, more the people you're working with? What are you yeah. looking for when you start finding these projects? Uh, well, thanks. First of all, I appreciate being uh, you know, called an ally. I feel like it comes very effortlessly. I'm uh, my life is filled with so many beautiful, wonderful people that I just feel lucky to be able to connect with all kinds of artists uh, from every sort of life denomination. Uh, so uh, that's wonderful. And for me, you know, when I'm making art and making work, I'm I'm looking to reflect. I think my life. Uh, as best I can. And also, I mean, it's one part reflecting my life, which is at times not the most useful. I mean, you know, cisgender, straight male, white male in America right <laughs> now is, is not the perspective that I think is the most useful. Um, and so I think artistically, my job is to, uh, you know, uh, to elevate other voices uh, at all uh, opportunities. And, and equally, I think in my own personal work is to dive uh, deeper into what it means to be who I am in the world, what it means when I walk into a room uh, and try to try to pull at that a little bit, pull at the strings. And also, you know, I think try to dig into other stories and find places that I can help. Yeah, I, I've collaborated uh, on quite a lot of work with a friend of mine, Daniel Armando. He makes these amazing films that have played basically to sold out crowds in every LGBTQ film festival on the circuit and uh, I've shot every one of his films and our work together has been so meaningful to me. And he's been in lots of films I've made and we just have such a beautiful collaboration that I'm so grateful to work with him and, and make that work. And I think, you know, it's one thing to, to be a director and to bring in that perspective or to write a script and bring my, you know, personal perspective that 
it's unavoidable, but to be able to elevate someone like Danny's voice and perspective through cinematography has been an incredible uh, gift. Well said. And I, and I got to talk about that because when I was going through all my research for you, uh, going through your films and everything, I never realized the cinematography. I mean, I went directly from considering you as a writer, director, filmmaker, Mm -hmm. and then I started watching your films. And the Mm -hmm. first thing that kind of jumped out to me was your use of light. You have an amazing Mm. use of light and dark. And it's like, you have to have a cinematographer's eye. Then I look at your IMDb page doing research and that's what your mainstay is. You are fantastic at that, my friend. Uh, Talk about that trained eye you've got. I mean, you're, it's just amazing. (laughs) I love your use of light and dark. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, I think that's that's the beautiful thing. I mean, I it's funny enough. I have a an acting background, right? So I studied acting as a in my early twenties, and and turns. I mean, I don't mind playing silly versions of myself, but ultimately, uh, mm-hmm. that background offered a really interesting opportunity, both as a director and a cinematographer, and that was to watch other people perform, right? And to and to and mm-hmm. to work out stuff, and 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 that kind of helped in some ways shaped my eye a little bit as far as like what I wanted in performance, but also as a cinematographer, it gives me a point of view. And so when I'm, uh, when the camera's in my hand, I think that I'm able to, I bring a sort of, without sounding, sounding a bit cliche, bringing a character to the table. And so I, you know, especially with, with Danny's films, which he sort of lets me, we kind of call it dancing around. I'm able to kind of inject a little bit of, uh, I'm interacting both with the space uh, the characters and, and yeah, I think mean, ultimately the light, like I think that I have a, a deep obsession with the way that light feels and the way that light can, mm-hmm. can uh, make others feel and, and, and really trying to, you know, initially it was about trying to create realism and having this like a sense of reality that something rooted in something natural and organic. And, and you see that across the board with, I think my films and also the food stuff, but, but equally trying to also play with stuff that's a little bit elevated and, and poetic. I was at the Mass Mocha uh, a few months ago before everything closed down. It's a beautiful mm. art museum in, Ma- in Massachusetts. And there's a, an incredible light show there where you go into this big, giant room, and it's just the lights change every few seconds, every few minutes. And I remember at one point the light turned this sort of like warm yellow, and I just started crying. And I remember, I, I, I just realized it's like that, that's that the impact of light alone on your emotional experience is so incredible. And that's the stuff I'm digging for. I mean, I think I approach cinematography, even when we're locked down and the shot is a single long shot, I approach it as a, as uh, from a documentary standpoint, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm open to discovering something. And, and a lot of that has to do with the way that people are interacting in a light or in space. Well, it's massive, my friend. I have to say, I was so impressed. Oh, thank by you it. so much. Let's go I into really, Rebel really Studios. That. I need. Oh, you're very welcome. Let's talk about Rebel because I'm very interested. I mean, this is your partnership again with your brother. Tell yeah. me, I can't handle being in the same room with my brothers for more than a half hour. <laughs> and you've got a couple of partnerships with them. Talk about. Yeah. How you guys work together, um, how you guys build each other's strengths and weaknesses. I know you bring two different things. He's more the editor and effects, yep. and you're, you, right. you bring the cameraman. But talk about 
spending that much time with your brother? How have you kind of found that is deepening your relationship or talk about that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I had founded Robel Films with my former partner who we had met in acting school and we had grown up together making projects. And then uh, we were both obviously very close with my little brother, Alec. And Alec is Alec's seven years younger than I am. Uh, and so there's, you know, we're close, but there's sort of a, a, a gap in both technology and, and uh, decades of, not decades, but there's, a, there's almost a decade between us. And there's an interesting, uh, we just have different points of view, which have, it's been fantastic because he brings such a fresh perspective to what I'm doing, but we, but we are what we're doing, but we have such a, um, I don't know, I think there's a dialogue there. And what's really, really nice about working with Alec is that it started off, you know, he sort of came into the fold with the Robel, with Robel films and our, our film productions uh, and helped in the last like sort of handful of films uh, in one way or another. And, and he started off sort of green, you know, he was this kid who he, he, he was, he had access to technology younger than I had access to technology that, that like in the digital age, you know, I was making films, my first films when I was first making YouTube videos, you know, we were holding a webcam up, you know, a, a laptop with a webcam on it and filming that way. And, and, and you could, that was in the age where you could accidentally get 6 million views, uh, which is sort of embarrassing now, but uh, an incredible place to also learn. Um, and, and Alec grew up in a time where, you know, you could still, you know, YouTube was still, it was sort of just part of their culture. And so uh, we have, and he's, he's sort of the yin to my yang. He's, I'm a little bit more outgoing. I'm definitely hyperactive. I'm kind of manic sometimes. I'm loud. And he's, 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 uh, quiet and at times emotionally unavailable. <laughs> this is, you could this is, talk to my therapist about it, but uh, he, he, uh, it, we kind of provide this interesting, I don't know. I'd hate to say good cop, bad cop. Well, cause all cops are bad, but uh, we, we, we bring this interesting balance of, of where he, I keep it all on, on the sleeve. You know, I, I wear my heart and he keeps it kind of, quiet and at times I think there's a good balance in that when it comes to art because he also approaches it he's much more technically minded than I am I'm so I react you know and he and I speak and he listens and I think that I you know I benefit a lot from learning from him in that way trying to trying to listen and he's incredibly patient with me and like I said I think he he started off sort of green and then when we we founded uh, the Bayless Brothers, which is sort of our new production, commercial production company, making food stuff together. It was out of a mutual interest in food and food culture, but also uh, elevating what we, you know, our, our, just our collaborative energy. That's awesome. I love hearing that. That's so cool that you guys can kind of do that. Did it, did it bridge the gap? I mean, seven years is a long time growing up. Sure. Does, were you kind of, separate and then it brought that bridge together what kind of brought you guys together in the filmmaking part yeah you know i mean i think that uh i imagine he always looked up to me as a a kid and and uh but you know i went off into the world seven years before he did and he he's also six foot 100 so he's very tall and he was growing up he was a basketball player and he was he played i think he probably played football he was sort of athletic uh and you know when you're that tall at that age, everybody wants you to play basketball. And so he was, it was perfectly fine and good at it, but <laughs> he always had this uh, urge to create. And so he started making films early on. And like I, I mentioned, he, you know, YouTube was already kind of built into his culture and his, and his upbringing. And so he 
initially left uh, high school and went to Chicago for a few years. And we were, we started to kind of have this conversation about art and work and he went to art school and tried that out. And then I got him a job working as an editor in New York and that brought him to New York. And then once he was here, I had him in my pocket. I mean, it's, it's hard because it's sort of every close relationship of mine uh, inevitably is collaborative or is, is uh, it, it, there's a creation that comes out of it, you know, for better, for better or worse, because I think that's, that's sort of one of the downsides of making such personal work in the way that we do, you know, every, every relationship, every close relationship might, might somehow factor into that. Um, but luckily right. for us, we're, we're, we're brothers. And, and as a result, we can also push each other to the edges a little bit as far as, you know, even, you know, we're, we don't have a perfect relationship. We, I'm certain we fight and I'm so, you know, we have a business partner that he has to listen to either side of our thing. But at the end of the day, we ha- because of our relation, our deep relationship, uh, and we have a very close family, I think it just allows us to like push a little further than you would with somebody else, and uh, and come at to you can always come back to the table with an open heart because at the end of the day, we're always going to be brothers, and that that goes that supersedes any artistic creation or any professional work that we do. I love that. Let's go into Rebel because I love you guys do everything from TV series to music videos to feature <laughs> films, um, mm-hmm. movers, makers, groovers, shakers. Uh, you may not know this, but I am a coffee-aholic. Um, I have about <laughs> six to ten cups a day. So Ryan was Good. probably one of my favorite um, in that series, but you did a great, oh, that's great series of talks with different people. Uh, talk about um, what that's like kind of sharing people's stories. That's got to be very exciting. That's what I love about my job doing this to talk about people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's our, our interest too. And my interest specifically, I, like I said, I think I approach almost every project from a documentarian standpoint, even the narrative work, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're peeling away the layers of, of the human experience. And obviously food has a big part of that. Food is an entry point into all kinds of things. Uh, I mean, we made mover makers, groover shakers. It was, uh, a sort of interview series that, and, and highly collaborative too. What was fun about that is that some of those stories were told in Chicago. So that was a great opportunity for Alec to work with some folks to, to shoot some stuff and bring it to the table. And he cut some of that stuff and I cut some of that stuff. And uh, it was, it was just designed for us. You know, we, we always say it's like sort of an access point to people. Like we just want, it's an opportunity to find ourselves in strange places and, and new rooms and have new experiences. Uh, I mean, that's the fun of, of doing documentary work altogether. It's like, you know, I, I remember we, we were working on a, uh, a documentary project for, it was a client-based thing that was a, around a family, but we had to interview uh, somebody. It wasn't for that series. Like I said, it was, it was sort of a private, it was a private family documentary we working on, but we ended up at, I don't remember, I guess it would, you would consider the, the, Jewish tourism board or something. It was one of these groups, but okay. we in New York city and it was high up in this really amazing, beautiful building. And I didn't realize that, you know, I thought we were just interviewing this sort of like fancy, fancy man at the, the building. And we had to, and they had, they had uh, the security was so intense, of course, that, and I, I guess I don't, not sure what, uh, yeah, I guess it, it was it was crazy security, and we went there, and Alec and I got taken into separate rooms and had different guards like break down all of our gear, 
ask us a bunch of questions. We realized that they had done a bunch of research on who we are. And this is just to to do an interview for this doc project that we were working on. And uh, and then afterwards, we're just sitting in this lobby after being basically, it was like, you know, the Israeli Secret Service uh, breaking us down. Then we we did the interview. And then later, we were like, wow, what a strange, what a strange experience. You know, it's like we didn't (laughs) expect that today we would be pulled apart into separate rooms we have our equipment like broken down and examined and then questioned uh to do what we do and then you know that's just one sort of extreme example we've also you know ends up in in coffee shops and bars and the back of restaurants and fed by you know uh fed fish right off the boat with the chef like those experiences just we do it for that you know it's just to to sure it's our way it's our way of 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 accessing life a little bit nice and one of the things i really like is i talk about in the show a lot finding your tribe whatever it may be mm-hmm. and i love that you kind of seem to have this core group you work with i noticed that uh ben scott branch who seems i want to mm-hmm. on my show but you talked about him at Movies and Groovers. He did a music video you've done for him. He's been in a couple of your films. Mm-hmm. It seems like you have a really core group there that you enjoy working with and really support each other. And I think that's so important in the artistic community or any community. Like I said, building your tribe is really important. Oh, it's been humongous. I feel so grateful. Like I said, with the work, you know, we want it to reflect uh, both the life that I wanted to reflect my life and the people in my life, but also try to, you know, dig deeper and reach out and elevate that. And I'm just so lucky because, you know, someone like Ben Brandt is Ben's uh, a great friend. Uh, he's a mentor. He, you know, he's, he's a little bit older than me. And I, as a, I, I'd initially met Ben when he was playing in bands in Michigan when I was a high school student and he, I just always looked up to him. And then, uh, you know, about, I guess almost a decade ago, we connected over making a music video and we've since made tons of work. He's been in films, he's scored films. Uh, He's just somebody whose work I've always loved and to be able to collaborate with him and bring him to the table for our projects has been uh, tremendous. Uh, Same, same goes for, you know, I mentioned Danny Armando, like made so many films with Danny. Like, you know, it's like for every two films I've made with Danny, Danny's been in three films of mine. uh, (laughs) And it's just this incredible group of, of artists uh, and, and that takes an incredible amount of trust and you know and it's also amazing because I think we have these sort of documents now of our relationships over the last decade decade and a half uh, and you watch us grow from from you know puffy faced little sure. kids into to the adults that we are and, and I, we find ourselves once again in strange places that we didn't know we belonged and uh, you know even in the back of film festivals or you know the after parties it's amazing to think that we at one point were pointing webcams at each other and here we are working you know with (laughs) people and producers and you know whole crews running around it's really a powerful thing and your feature films i mean i got to see uh some trailers on a lot of Mm -hmm. very powerful i mean good monsters that story is just kind of amazing talk about where you get your story ideas from um, how these come to you because there's some amazing movie making here, my friend. Ah, thank you so much. Yeah, G- Good Monsters was really interesting because so I had met Eric in Indianapolis. The it was the very first film festival with my very it was sort of my 
second or third like feature film, but felt like my first film, which was Everyone Says I Look Just Like Her, which we had shot in Michigan, and then it was the first film to play a, a, a real film festival, and it played at the Indianapolis, what was called the Indianapolis International Film Festival, which is now just the Indianapolis Film Festival, and uh, the folks who run that are incredible and have, have to this day been, been dear friends of mine. Uh, but Eric worked for the marketing company that ran the festival, and he's an incredible artist. And we had met the very first night I was there. He he rolled up uh, smoking a joint, <laughs> and I was just like, who is this this cool dude? And I was like, all these film festival people are, are whatever, and he's the only person I wanted to talk to the whole night. Uh, and really became like a brother to me over the years. And we just I, – I had uh, another film play – about I think a festival and a half later, two maybe two years later, uh, at the same fest, and I just decided, you know, he has got this really interesting story. He he uh, biracial. Uh, his father was sort of in and out of prison, and he you know appears as a black man in the world, and uh, but kind of grew up with mo- in a mostly uh, white sort of parts of Indiana, and and. Uh, wrestled with his identity like a lot of people do and he just really opened his world to me and I just tried to approach it from a completely open like so much to learn and we and it was in such a safe place where we had you know I benefited from making that film not in the in the but the work that you didn't see the stuff that happened around the film and while we were making it, the conversations we were having off camera you know and it was just such a incredible relationship once again it's uh, like like I said, it, these people become, you know, your closest friends become your collaborators, and uh, and he was just a, such a main part of my my tribe. Uh, so Good Monsters was this amazing experience that uh, it took about four years to make, and uh, and I wrestled with the edit forever trying to get that story right, and it's mm. still you know eventually I had to release it into the wild, and it's become. Uh, increasingly relevant, I think, and uh, was always relevant, but uh, increasingly important and vital uh, in my library of work, for sure. Nice, and I loved, I want to see the full version. I like the lightness of Love Me Anyway. Um, that oh, was, thank you. Uh, just a very breezy uh, preview that I got to see. Um, I love, again, like I said, I love the light of it. I love just mm-hmm. what the story could be. Talk about that film a second. Yeah, absolutely. That was the first film I shot in California, which there's a reason that they shoot films in California, right? I mean, the the light is just so <laughs> incredible. It's just go, incredible. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't beat it and and like I said, I I so much of my work is this interaction with light and and people and light and space and and that was it was truly a breezy experience. One of easily uh the breeziest, most enjoyable film I've made. Uh, and that's funny enough, that was the film where Danny and I were showing his film, I guess it was probably his first feature, which was called What It Was. It was playing at Frameline in San Francisco and then was going to play Outfest in L.A. And so, but there was, there's a gap between Frameline and Outfest of a few weeks. And so we, right. shot, we shot some stuff in San Francisco just for fun. I was like, well, I'll bring the camera out. We'll shoot some stuff. And then we had uh, uh, some friends in L.A. that we wanted to work with, and my cousin's a sound operator out there. And so we sort of put together this crew of two or three, and we and Danny and I came up with an outline. And we went to L.A. in between the gap between the two film festivals and just sort of shot, uh, some, shot some work at the Line Hotel, which is this beautiful hotel. 
and uh, and it was new, and we got a discount, I think. And our our good friend Alan Wong, executive produced it, meaning he paid for our hotel rooms. And uh, <laughs> we, we we shot some stuff in the in the hotel, and we shot some stuff at uh, a really nice apartment in in West Hollywood. And it was it was great because I had I had I had been on the LGBT film circuit. Now this was the second film we were on. Uh, and have since played these festivals a, a, a number of times and had seen all this beautiful work. And, and it was reflective of uh, my life experiences and the experiences of my dear friends and family. And it was, I think I had an opportunity to tell that story and to broaden, you know, uh, relationships outside of the sort of heteronormative storylines and narratives. And uh, Danny really gave me that freedom to do that. And, to, and, and, and the beautiful thing about making that film and, and really 90% of the work that I do make is that we, you know, we outline and then we primarily improvise. So everybody is bringing some truth, some of, uh, some part of their psyche or point of view to the table. So I always feel like it's like, we, we want to create, we create a space in which people can bring some creative capital to the table. And so, uh, that film is just, it was just such a joy to make. I feel really, really lucky to have worked with everyone. Eddie Munez, who plays Danny's brother in it, is an incredible filmmaker in his own right. Brian, who plays Danny's love interest in that movie, uh, is another filmmaker who I've since shot one of his films. Uh, it's just they, you know, these this work, this work creates uh, bridges, you know. Right. That's awesome. I love that. And then on the opposite end of the light spectrum, literally, you have hymns. <laughs> which is so dark and so I mean but the story is so powerful on that. Yeah. Talk about where that story came about. Yeah, absolutely. Well Hymns is an interesting film. It was a story I wanted to tell for a while. I was interested in uh exploring what we consider like the nuclear family. I thought a lot about uh World War Two, which I I'm, I'm really enjoy history. You know, some of World War Two and all the men off to war and, and the women left uh to sort of watch watch the shore. And uh, I thought about if these, in, in sort of a, a dystopian time, you know, some sort of unknown war, if women are sort of forced to create the, the classic sort of nuclear family, uh, what, what are those dynamics like? And I wanted to explore that a lot. I'm, I'm always playing with, uh, and I think it's specifically in that film, sort of wrestling with gender a little bit and the, and the experience of, you know, there's a character in it who, uh, grew up admiring her brother and doesn't want to wear, you know, the sort of issued dresses and, and, uh, and the other characters seeing her husband in her, in his sister a bit and wanting to explore what that feeling is. And uh, so I think that film is interesting because it, it's about war. And, it, and I think it's also about that internal war of, of uh, you know, I think there's a subtle gender thing going on there. That's not, it doesn't, you know, we didn't go as deep into it as I think, we can or, or could in future work, but certainly uh, wrestling with that experience of the binary a little bit. And, uh, and it is a dark film. I mean, it came, you know, we shot that film. Uh, my former partner and I had a, a death of somebody who actually lived in the location that we shot it. Um, and that happened about six months prior. And sort of when the death happened, it was an, an older person. When it happened, uh, we were there, and it was so it was such a traumatic, tragic experience for us uh, that we sort of gave ourselves permission as part of the healing process to make the work in that space. So it's it is easily, I mean, the sadness is real, and, and it is easily one of the most personal films I've 
ever made. And, and Mm -hmm. uh, so much of that interaction with, you know, once again, the light, the darkness, the space uh, has to do with uh, really feeling the presence of that, of that person and that, and that time. Right. Well, goodness gracious. I recommend all the listeners go to the website, which we'll give at the end here, because there's so many great films to talk about. Our house for the weekend looks amazing. Club. <laughs> but I want to move on to food because I am sure. a chubby guy and food's where I'm all about. <laughs> Ryan, I gotta tell you. So let's jump into the Ballas Brothers here. Fantastic group you've created again with your brother. You've also brought on Craig Gacy as executive producer. Mm-hmm. Talk about how this came about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I, I mentioned, you know, Alec and I have, uh, a couple of years ago, I was I was shooting with this company. I got connected through a producer from Independent Films, and he, the, these people were shooting. Uh, they were going to start shooting food food commercials, and they really needed somebody who could work. Frankly, someone who could work for cheap, uh, but but also somebody who understood independent production because they were trying to kind of change the model a little bit, right? To go from like you know, food commercials used to cost two hundred thousand dollars. To make insane, you know, a McDonald's commercial, two hundred easily two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars to make, and these folks right. wanted to kind of reshift that model, and they needed to work with an independent who understood how to shoot in that way, and who could work with one or two people rather than forty people, uh, and I was sort of recommended for that, and so I had one of the jobs was we were going to go out to Portland, Oregon, and shoot. Uh, this food festival, but we weren't going to just shoot, you know, it wasn't like a videography job where we were going to shoot the event happening or anything like that. We were going to tell stories from the event. So we were going to meet with chefs and do these really cool Mm, interviews and then, you know, shoot sort of food porn. And, and uh, I, so I recommended Alec to come and come and edit. And he was sort of still a green kind of editor, but I knew that he had been working at a news uh, outlet and he could cut, he could cut pieces really fast. And, and understood the style. And he, what's beautiful about working with Alec is that he, uh, he and I have such a shorthand. He knows, bet, you know, yeah. he can, he can look through my raw footage and see, you know, when I'm going to get there, you know, and when it, when it's going to happen, <laughs> when the moment's going to happen. And, and, and what would be frustrating, you know, our editor, uh, Alec is excited about because he knows where I'm going. And, and so we have a, and then now based on the way he cuts, I know to shoot in a certain way because, where you know it's a, it's a dialogue, and so we formed the Bayless Brothers as this as a way to shoot commercial tabletop food, and which it's really amazing because quite literally all we need is a table and and you know food and some hands and there's some other factors, but uh, it's a way for us to operate much like an independent film company, uh, which we are, but but uh, keep the cost pretty low, but shoot client work after brands of all kinds of shapes and sizes, and we have. We've shot, you know, anyone from, you know, content for Visa down to folks making, you know, artisanal uh, food in, in regional areas. So, uh, right. and then we, and we brought on Craig, who's this amazing, he's an amazing guy from Long Island, uh, who strong Long Island accent. He's a little older than we are, but I've worked with him for years doing videography work when we were just getting our start. And he's just an incredible guy. And uh, he, we needed somebody uh, you know, we're talking about our relationship. We needed a third person, you know, somebody who could balance Alec and I out and make sure that, you know, there's someone who has a third vote. So we were never split, you know. And so we've we've made all of this, you know, we're we're shooting all of this food work uh, sort of on accident. I mean, neither of us have any culinary background. We just <laughs> love 
food and we love food culture and we love that ongoing conversation about food. We love being in the back of restaurants with amazing chefs or on the boat with an amazing chef or uh, on a, you know, outside around a fire uh, cooking, cooking and shooting and, and, you know, the farm. And so we've been really lucky uh, in that way to take something that I think most people in experience that most people like seek out and made it really a, a, a career move. Well, it's turned out fantastic because, as I said, I'm a foodie from way back. It's one of the three founding principles of the podcast five years ago. And it just is – it's beautifully shot, of course, which I knew it would be. But just it, you bring the fun to it. You bring the whimsy to it, which is important in food. I mean, I'm ready to make that bananas foster oatmeal tomorrow. <laughs> That's just a simple recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sounds of ice cream Sunday was amazing. <laughs> Talk, that was an MTV project. I saw that MTV yeah. labeled. Where did that come yeah. from? Yeah, we, we pitched on an idea that was uh, brought to us uh, on ASMR, obviously, is this gigantic thing. And it, had, it was just getting really popular on YouTube and MTV, you know, once MTV, MTV knows about it, you might be at the peak, but uh, <laughs> MTV wanted to do a food ASMR series and we pitched, you know, we pitched on it and got it. And, you know, our, our approach has always been like, because we don't have uh, the food background, we come at, as outsiders. And I think that's, and, and also because I come as an independent filmmaker, I come as, you know, we have a, a certain artistic eye. We want to, you know, we want to do work that has bold colors that feels a little bit elevated. I want to talk about you say because you, you're talking about not being food experts, but I love you guys. Even made a pilot about uh, that you guys <laughs> can't cook. <laughs> the Bayless <laughs> brothers can't cook. That's a fun concept. Are you think you're going to take that anywhere? Because that was a fun little show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I hope so. You know, we're trying to figure out its voice still a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, the idea was we thought about it's sort of the anti cooking show or the sort of punk rock cooking show, you know, so so much about the food world is is aesthetically a little bit cold, a little bit uh, crunchy or organic. And, and we want to do something that's a little bit uh, loud and crazy and, and kind of play around. And also for us, you know, it is also so dominated by uh, white people and we're no, uh, we're not necessarily, we're not an exception to that rule. And so what we want to use the show for is to, to be able to highlight and showcase other people uh, from all kinds of uh, uh, lives, lives, different humans. And so we're hoping that the, if we do continue doing the show, which I hope we will, uh, we will bring it someplace uh, that is interested in, in, in telling a broader story about food because uh, the, for so long the food narrative has been very – it's been a single story, and I think that we're trying to change that uh, to the best of our ability. So, yeah, I would I, – no, I, I love this. That. I mean, the show is super fun, but, uh, yeah, we got to make sure that we have the proper voice for it to keep, to keep doing it. No, I love that. I just brought on a special correspondent on every other Thursday – uh, for a food uh, foodie minute, a Thursday uh-huh. foodie minute, and she was talking one of her first things. There's like at least 21 different flavor profiles in New York when you look at the different neighborhoods and everything there. So yeah, I see a lot absolutely. of potential in that because there is so many different ways you can go with that. I think that's a great idea. So congratulations on that. Oh, but thank one you. Thing, 
the Bayless brothers can do is drink, we found out. You have a fun little <laughs> podcast that you started in January. I like it. I like that you're starting with classics. You got Martine, Manhattan, Greyhound. Um, the trendy Moscow Mule is so trendy right now. Your mm-hmm. bourbon. I, I'm a huge bourbon, single malt scotch kind of guy. Talk about how this idea came to you. Are you having fun with it? Because I would be. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's an absolute excuse to just drink together. I mean, there's no <laughs> there's no other good explanation. We're never going to make a dime from it. We're never – our audience isn't even that big. Frankly, it's like uh, – for us, it's a way to like have a cocktail at the end of the week and record. Uh, and it's been interesting because, you know, it initially started as a way to explore cocktails and, and, and how they're made and kind of do like an ASMR, see what ASMR, like kind of how it worked with a, with a podcast and, and, and yeah. And to really learn more about, we're always trying to learn more about the, the food and drink world. Uh, but, but bourbon specifically, it shifted more towards what we call these segments, the bourbon library, which is, uh, us in com- my brother and I in conversation with our dad, uh, who, you know, he's a, he's he's a classic Midwestern quiet dad, and for years, <laughs> you know, he, you know, I, I remember telling him, uh, you know, I would never have a son, I would never let my son play football, and my dad said, well, I never imagined that my son would be in theater, but I'm so glad that he is, <laughs> and it was just like this funny. That's been our dynamic my whole life, and and you know, we we connected, we've always gotten along, but. But when when we both we both kind of stumbled on bourbon and a love of of really diving into the bourbon world at the same time, and so it's been a great way to connect with our dad uh, and our whole family. You know, my my other our other brother we we you know, found a way to get him involved and my dad's best friend and it's been a really really fun way for us to just uh, drink together and specifically during quarantine and during this pandemic it's it's been our weekly check-in you know it's been a way for us to 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 check in with each other stay connected and also have talk about something that we care deeply about and of course like i i you know i've mentioned before i think that food is this and and drink is this sort of access point to so much so when we we can talk about urban uh we start talking about history you know and when we talk about history there's right. a lot to dive in and it becomes more and more relevant uh every day there you go. And post-quarantine, I feel a road trip to Kentucky and Tennessee coming on. That would be a fun to have all you guys out there. Oh, We did a Kentucky trip last year, and it was amazing. And we're hoping as soon as we can to do another one. Uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, when I first discovered my love of bourbon and, and expensive, nice bourbon, I, uh, my, uh, we, had, we were shooting a film. My brother and I were actually shooting a film in Kentucky in Louisville. Uh, with a friend Brian, who was in Love Me Anyway, because of course everything is connected, and uh, <laughs> and uh, we were people were bringing us just the nicest bottles of bourbon because you know down south everybody's so damn polite, and and we were shooting this film. We were staying at our friend's family home, and like every night, some neighbor or some family member would drop by. They wanted to like meet the film crew, and they'd always bring us some fancy bottle, and we drank a lot of bourbon on that trip. <laughs> I love it. Well, if you ever get to the drinks where you want to be able to drive home at night, let me know and I'll come on for my coffee recipes, <laughs> coffee cocktails. Hey, that would be fantastic. Drive home. <laughs> We'd be happy to have you. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ryan Bayless. I got to tell you, talk about, uh, let everyone know where they can find your work, uh, give both your website and where they can follow you on social media, my friend. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I appreciate you so much for taking the time. This has been fantastic, and I'm super glad to to have a conversation. And uh, it's so nice to meet, you know, such nice, kind people in the world. So I appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, you. You, can, you, you can find the work, uh, Robel Films, that's R-O-B-E-L Films.com. Uh, that's primarily the independent uh, feature work. And then sort of the newer, fresher, crazy food porn stuff uh, is at thebaylessbrothers.com. That's the B-A-L-A-S brothers.com. Uh, and that's all of our crazy food stuff. For a little while, we ran a site called the Food Porn Hub, uh, which I thought was genius, but it was just never <laughs> quite got the traction we wanted. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're always updating and, and lots of great food content. And, you know, of course, it's lots of branded work, but frankly – you know, I think it's some of the most artistic stuff we've ever done. So please check it out. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that you can check out uh, a huge handful of my films on the Fearless app, which is an incredible, totally inclusive app that I'm in love with. They've been so kind to me. And uh, I would I would definitely say download that app, subscribe to it, and you can watch. We have a channel uh, for Robel Films on the Fearless app. Watch all of our movies, and please don't hesitate to ever reach out or how, you know, however you get in contact, tweet, Instagram, whatever it is, I'd love to hear from you. Well, back at you on the compliments, my friend. It's been an amazing chat. I love uh, finding great artists at work, and you are an artist in both food, film, and everything in between, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much. All right, stay on the line, guys. We will have a special five questions with Ryan sometime very soon. We're going to play out to a little music. And I'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. I woke up in the middle of a dream. Cause I swore that you were lying next to me But all I have are these empty sheets To cover the rest of what you left of me And no, I can hear you through these walls You just won't let me go This used to be our home and now I'm only living in silence with the words I regret That won't let me sleep in my bed I know I'm lying wide awake And I'm trying not to think about you, think about you now No, I can feel 
hitting all those gender stereotypes and, and gender roles and stuff, mm. people telling me I couldn't right. do all that stuff, had to wear dresses, things like that. So definitely struggled when I hit that age and was kind of trying to figure out who I was. And a lot of the work that I do now is has so much to do with what I wish I had when I was that age that could have kind of combated that uh, deviation right. from my like actual gender identity and how I wanted to express myself. And it's the thing that I hear the most about queer kid stuff from, particularly from queer adults of, you know, I wish I had this when I was a kid. And, and I just try to make that happen. Definitely. Don't we all, and I can't wait to kind of go into the content because you really, you talk about some amazing things and why it's okay to talk kids about that. And I just think everything is just fantastic. Let's start with your own story. Talk about when did you originally come out to yourself? Do you think, and when did you kind of first Mm. find your LGBTQ community? Yeah, I I started kind of coming out to myself when I was a teenager. I, you know, looking back on when I was a kid, I I was totally queer from a young age. I just didn't have the vocabulary (laughs) for it or any kind of representation that would tell me what it was that I was feeling, you know. And I think I I must have been like 16 when I, I went to a pre-college like theater summer camp thing because I was I was a huge theater nerd I still am and like we played like truth or dare in the laundry room like on one of the first weekends or something and I kissed a girl for the first time in uh that truth or dare and that's like when the moment when that light switch went off in my head that was like oh um, you might be a little bit gay. So from there, I mean, there was definitely like a lot of struggle in trying to figure out kind of my sexuality. I came out as bi at the time, you know, when I didn't really have a full understanding of who I was or really what coming out would mean or anything like that. So I, I kind of did that on like a little bit of a whim and didn't really know what I was talking about. And then right. um, kind of was continuing to like explore and figure myself out through high school, fell in love with my best friend, like you do, and kind of (laughs) was kind of figuring out that relationship and just like the general confusion around sexuality came out as uh, more firmly gay when I was in college, undergrad, had my first girlfriend, was starting to take gender studies classes and queer theory and starting to kind of understand where I might fit in under kind of like more of a queerness rather than like being like gay or bi and that's how I identify now I identify as queer and non-binary the kind of like gender the gender journey is has been like kind of a longer one I came out as non-binary when I was 25 or 26 so not too long ago, I'm, I'm 28 now, and I, I I really only came to that conclusion because I had gone to um, I don't know if you know the website Autostraddle, but it's a um, yeah a, yeah yeah it's an incredible resource. Um, it's definitely a space when I was in college where I first went to like, oh, what is gay sex? <laughs> like, what are what does it mean to be gay? Right, exactly. um, that, that was exactly that's like the first place I went and when I was about 25 or 26 I went to a camp which is their like in-person week-long camp for queer adults and it was the first time I'd ever actually been in a space that normalized they them pronouns and non-binary identity and I had friends in like my cabin who used they them pronouns and I was like huh okay like this is something that like could that kind of like started resonating with me so I asked when I came back from camp I like started asking people to like 
test out they them pronouns like using them around me for me and that really helped me kind of like hear and like feel my reaction to those pronouns and so I kind of it took like about a year or so just really figure out like okay like thing that I am and something I want I want people to use they them pronouns for me and I identify as non-binary so that was a little bit of the gender journey and still obviously going through all of that but that's kind of the story (laughs) it's a very good story I like it and talk about now you've got this theater background, so you're a natural performer. Mm-hmm. King is amazing, so you kind of got that okay. to your theater background, I'm sure. Talk about when you first thought this is something that you wanted to do towards children. Were you in children's? Did you do children's theater before? Was that kind of the first aha moment, or how did this concept even come to you? I didn't have a background in children's theater before I went to undergrad. My mom has always been a, a children's like music educator. She works for a larger organization called Music Together that does like family music classes, and so that's been a hmm. part of my life for I mean uh, since I was an infant. It's kind of in the blood a little bit, I guess. Um, gotcha. But when I went to under when I went to undergrad, I went to I went to Northwestern University and I went to their theater program. And you know, I, I went to that program and I was like, I'm going to be a famous actor. I'm going to do musical theater. I'm a singer. <laughs> so that was I was like, yeah, like we're gonna I'm going to play. I don't know what's some generic musical theater. The next big thing. You were the next big thing. Exactly, it was the next big thing. And I got there and I started auditioning and I wasn't getting cast in anything. I wasn't the ingenue. I wasn't that like you know that that girl. And I was frustrated by that. And I started moving into kind of a little bit more of the creative side of things. So writing and directing, more more directing mm. at the time. And I started, uh, so Northwestern has a really robust theater for young audiences program within the theater program itself. And so I started really gravitating toward that. And this kind of like simple universal storytelling, very like pared down, but very relatable and universal and simple. And those are things that I just really love. I grew up on Disney and Pixar, and those are stories that have really kind of held with me for my full for my for my life and uh it's something that I've loved ever since I was a kid and you know watched Toy Story for the first time and like went to the theater right. and like saw the Lion King <laughs> when it came out in the, in the 90s so that's something that has held throughout my life and I kind of found that when I found theater for young audiences I just kind of found Pixar on stage and I loved that and then you know that was at the same time as I was figuring out my identity and I developed these passionate interests in these two kind of separate things, this like storytelling and theater for young audiences and kind of queerness and my identity at the same time. And I looked at those two things and I asked why I couldn't put those two interests together. And so I took this, you know, all this work I was doing on my identity and in my queer theory and took that into my theater work. And I saw that there wasn't really any queer representation in theater for young audiences and storytelling for young people. And so I started asking, you know, why couldn't I figure out how to make that myself? So I went off to grad school for a year in London, got my MA and was kind of fiddling around with, you know, what might my artistic practice as this voice 
bringing queer representation to children's media, where could that fall? And I was living in London and I was a little homesick and was watching a lot of American LGBT YouTubers and kind of figured out that kids were watching YouTube or on that platform and that it was free and publicly accessible. And I wondered if that was a space where my work would could have a life. Um, and right. that's, that's kind of... How I started, I just I, I had the idea and, awesome. I, and I did it. I followed through, and and it's uh, turned into this this thing that's become a lot a lot bigger than just a web series. Well, it's an amazing thing. We're going to talk about all the aspects of it, but talk about did you do any kind of research? Because I mean, you have everything down from like the uniform that you see in like the Blues Clues or Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. or Captain Kangaroo. You have that same uniform. You have that great speaking style where you're not speaking down to them, but you're speaking to the children and with the children. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of research any of that behind, or does that just come, all come natural to you? I would say it came a little bit naturally, but also came out of this, like, education I built for myself around children's media. So really taking a lot of inspiration from Mr. Rogers in particular, a little bit from Sesame Street, just kind of with Hetty and, just you know, the way in which they, uh, and Mr. Rogers as well, take kind of complicated topics and really distill them down to their simplest core elements that are relatable to young people. And, you know, studying playwriting for young people and really being a student of storytelling, having been a performer pretty much my whole life. I took acting classes when I was in high school, and that was something that I was really into and passionate about. I was in the school plays Mm -hmm. and I have essentially a 20-year history of being a performer, so that definitely plays into it a bit. And sure. uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I did any like particular research just for queer kids stuff in that way, but it was definitely kind of a culmination of what at that point had been a lifetime of work. Nice, I like it. And then the whole theory behind it is radical queer joy, which I love. But let's start. Mm-hmm. And spend just a very little bit of time on the negative. You had to go into this Mm -hmm. thinking, I mean, we've had for years the focus on the family and all these people that they'll they'll boycott Will and Grace for a gay kiss. What were you kind of expecting as far as maybe the negative aspects of it? And how do you prepare yourself for something like that? Uh, And were you able to kind of keep the work separate from that, knowing what you needed to do for the work? Yeah, it was definitely tough. <laughs> Even before queer kid stuff, I'd kind of come against backlash for my work. My senior year of undergrad at Northwestern, I directed a play called The Transition of Doodle Pequeño by Gabriel Jason Dean. It is a lovely little play. The main character is an undocumented boy who moves into a new neighborhood, and the first person he meets is a young boy named Reno, who is a boy who loves to wear dresses. And we tried to tour that show to local uh, elementary schools in the Evanston area, just north of Chicago, and we had mm-hmm. one school cancel their performance because of, quote-unquote, inappropriate content. So that was wow. a pretty, um, intense experience in the very beginning of my kind of journey in doing this work. And that was – it was pretty intense. It really touches a nerve. It really does. And so I, right. when I kind of went and 
decided I was going to kind of pursue this kind of work, I knew that it was going to push people's buttons. I knew that there was going to be controversy, especially because it didn't exist. It was filling this enormous vacuum. And, you know, there's a reason why there's a vacuum, because it's hard, because it's hard and people are scared of it. So I went into queer kid stuff, you know, knowing I would get some backlash, knowing that people – weren't going to believe in the work. And I think I like prepared myself for that ideologically. I don't know if I prepared myself for it practically. Mm. I mean, the very first episode, I got just waves and waves of harassment, particularly, I mean, I, I launched the series in I think May of 2016. And then, I mean, in November, we elected our current horrific president. And uh, right. that, that was definitely like the peak year of just generally like harassment on the internet and YouTube in particular. And uh, it was a very intense experience. I'm definitely still kind of working through the trauma of that and it's tough. Um, but I think that it's, it's given me a pretty thick skin, given me more of a reason to, to get the work done and fight for it. Right. Cause I really like what you said that it kind of says that it is important work. If people, mm-hmm. if someone is against it, there's a reason because they know that it, it's powerful and that it needs to be mm-hmm. said. So I think that's amazing that you kind of kept pressing through that. And as you said, I mean, I saw your TED Talk, which is absolutely amazing. And you talked about in there how gender identity in kids is usually established by four. And there's a Mm -hmm. difference between sex and sexuality. Talk about those two things just real quickly in case our audience is just totally not with us here. Yeah, totally. So you're talking about three things, actually. So you're talking about gender, you're talking about sex, and you're talking about sexuality. So these are like three completely different things. And the big misconception I see that still exists, and I hope that my work tries to debunk, is that you, when you're talking about sexuality, you have to talk about sex. And that's not true. And, uh, and I'll right. explain that in, in kind of the way that I actually approach queer kid stuff and how I talk to kids about these topics. Because I had an old professor who used to tell me about how to write for young audiences, and he always used to say to write from under the doorknob. So you're, And I talk about this in my TED Talk, too, about kind of getting down to the ground and looking up at the world in the way a child would. So kids don't right. have the same context around these ideas that adults do. You know, we go through our whole lives with this idea of what gender is and with our kind of collective lived experiences of how we've experienced our gender, our sexuality, and how we've experienced sex. And kids don't come into the world with that body of knowledge, with that lived experience. So we have an opportunity as adults, as grown-ups, to kind of pitch kids the way that we they should grow up understanding gender and sexuality and sex. So the way that I like to talk about gender first is about how it's an internal feeling. It's a very gender is a very personal thing that we all kind of inherently understand about ourselves. It's about how we feel, but then it's also about how we take that internal feeling and how we externalize it through our gender expression. So that could be through our hair, through our clothes, honestly, anything we do or say in the world. And a big part of that is also our pronouns and how we use our pronouns to express ourselves and our gender to other people. Then we're going to talk about sexuality. So sexuality and gender are two different things. They're similar because sexuality has to do with gender, but sexuality takes gender and mixes it with love and attraction. 
Um, and attraction, sort of, that's kind of on a different spectrum, but we don't need to get that complicated. Um, so sexuality <laughs> is kind of looking at gender through a lens of love. And so our sexuality tells us, you know, what gender and who we love and, and usually has to do based on gender. So it's, it's about gender and love. And also I use family structures to explain that to kids because what's more relatable to children than family structures and showing, you know, how we have different sexualities based on different kinds of mishmashes of genders within family systems and family units. And then sex is almost a completely different conversation. So sex is about our bodies and sex is about, you know, how we use our bodies with other people and that has to do with pleasure and that's usually an adult thing. Um, I don't actually usually get into discussions about sex with the early ages that I'm talking to because it's usually just not relevant. But if I were to ever do any kind of programming for middle schoolers where that does become more relevant, it's just about we've built this foundation of gender and understanding gender. We've built this foundation of understanding sexuality around gender and love. And then we can kind of introduce this idea of sex and what our sexuality has to do with pleasure and how we essentially implement our sexuality in, in the world and through our relationships. So that's my big explanation around all of that. <laughs> no, and I love it, and I totally understand it. And you can actually even use um, sexual – if you ever decide to talk about sexuality, you can kind of keep it to what is wrong in sexuality. I mean, kind of Me Too movement kind of stuff for guys mm-hmm. and for girls. To understand because there is that kind of thing. I don't think there's it can really be too young to uh, to learn about some of those things. So so I can see exactly. where that can happen down the line, right? Exactly. No, I appreciate so I you kind video. of breaking that down. Yeah, and I actually have a video about consent, and that's kind of the way that I sort of adjacently talk about sex with young people is making sure they understand kind of like their bodily autonomy and having um, and having to give and receive permission to um, have any kind of access to another person's body or just for someone to have access to their body in any way. And you don't have to talk about sex with consent. You can talk about like, you know, if your grandma comes in for a big hug and that's not something you want, say, no, grandma, can we give a high five instead? It's giving kids. Right. Right. Um, authority over their own bodies. Very cool. Very cool. All right. And let's talk about, I mean, we started with the web series, so I want to go to all the different mm-hmm. facets here eventually, but start with the web series. You're on about season four now, I believe. Uh, give me a couple superlatives here. What one do you think you're maybe most proud of? What did you have the most positive response to? And maybe what was the one you were most scared to present that you kind of really thought about for a while? Oh, interesting question. I think my favorite episode I ever did was about gender roles and stereotypes. I just think it's a well-done episode. There's a really fun song about gender in there, and I, I think it just ties together a lot of the ideas we kind of talk about throughout the series about how we look at gender through a critical lens and how kids can, you know, take what they've learned through all of the queer kid stuff kind of videos and lessons and implement that in their own lives and kind of look at how the world interacts with gender as well. I really yeah. love that video. Nice. Um, you said one that I was scared of, and then what was the other one? Uh, most positive response to maybe. That you got a lot of most positive. From. The video we did about consent got a, ro- a lot of really good feedback just because it, it – particularly about the timing when it came out it came out right around 
when the Me Too movement really started with um, okay. uh, folks coming out about Harvey Weinstein. So I think that that was just really well, it was well timed. Um, but also, I think that it really opened people's eyes to ways in which we can include young people in a conversation around consent and in the conversation around what was happening at the time, because I think it can be so hard for adults and and parents in particular when something, you know, really intense is going on in the world, particularly in pop culture, and how to clue young people in to what's happening without it being kind of an adult conversation that isn't appropriate for their age. So I think that that episode in particular really helped. And and I also think it helped show adults that like if a four-year-old can understand this concept, then like you can too. So so Mm -hmm. I think that that was, that got a lot of really good feedback. And then episode that I was scared of, I did an episode on bodies and that's something that was a little scary to me um, because I think that people get, get a little wiggly around, um, adults kind of talking about kids and their bodies and, you know, what our bodies look like and using anatomically correct language. Um, And that's something that people just get a little touchy about. And I think that that's something I was a little nervous about, I would say, maybe not scared. I think more nervous um, because I've, I've touched on timely topics before, but this was less about that and more about like, okay, how do we, how do we talk about something that's a little taboo in a different way? Um, I'm also someone who's a pretty private person, and I I don't generally talk about my body in public, let alone uh, with my friends and community. And, it's, and that was something that I had to kind of confront my own vulnerability and make sure that you know I wasn't setting an example of like not of being closed off about that part of yourself. That was just a little like personally scary for me in that way. Right. And what is a subject that you're looking forward to doing that you might not have done yet, that you're waiting for the right time? Yeah, we ended on season four. I'm not actively producing the series itself on YouTube anymore um, for okay. many reasons, but it's kind of it's kind of found a new life through these like live streams, and I do live performances, and I run a podcast um, where I interview activist kids and youth who are incredible. (laughs) These kids are awesome. Um, But through the live streams, I've kind of been able to breathe new life into the web series, which has been really cool. And um, it's something that I realized that I miss kind of like having that regular space to talk about these things. Something I really want to focus on on a future stream is talking about what it means to be queer and indigenous, um, Native American. And uh, I want to talk about uh, land acknowledgments and what a land acknowledgement is and uh, talking about what it means to be two-spirit. So I'm I'm really excited to uh, bring someone on, hopefully to a stream in the near future, to kind of talk about those issues and represent queerness in the um, indigenous communities for young people. Because I think that, you know, that's not something that's talked about in general culture very much, let alone social sure. media. So I'm, excited, so I'm excited to do that and bring that perspective to queer kids stuff. Great. Well, let's go into the podcast. You brought it up. It's called yeah. Activist You. I love it. You're mm-hmm. doing it kind of biweekly now, and you bring in a special kid correspondent, which I absolutely love. Talk about uh, the goals behind it and what the response has been. It sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I love doing it. It's so much fun. I'm meeting 
just these incredible young people who are a part of these enormous global movements and a lot of the times leaders in those movements. So, and it's also, what's been really cool about it is that, I mean, I'm an LGBT activist and that's kind of my expertise and my specialty. And I try to bring an intersectional eye to that as much as I can, but I'm not very you know, heavily involved in a lot of other activist movements, and there's so many social justice movements going on right now in the world. And I am just like so excited to learn from all of these really incredible youth voices. So I've been able to talk to climate change activists, and uh, there was this one girl who was uh, from the South and part of, uh, I think she was she's from Alabama and she's part, she like founded her own kind of like collective of youth activists. So she was really cool to talk to because, you know, I'm from New York city and from uh, a Yankee state, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I, I loved talking to her. There's a kid over on the, in the Bay area in California who advocates for recycling. I thought that was really cool. He was like eight. There are kids doing kind of art as activism um, for immigration. I talked to someone who had a, a beautiful personal story about school who had been detained or whose family had been deported and was, you know, she was really passionate about immigration and the detention centers and internment camps at the border. Um, I thought that was just a really beautiful episode. I got wow. to talk to um, Nupal Kiyozolu, who is a big part of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. She's ninth, and she's doing such cool things. I actually believe. I actually, I was checking her Instagram the other day, and I actually think she got arrested for being part of the, um, the most recent Black Lives Matter protests. And man, her story is super inspirational. And I talked to Desmond. Uh, amazing. Who's the kid? Who's the kid? Drag queen. And oh man, these kids are so cool. And I'm learning so much and really expanding um, my understanding of social justice and what what kind of world we can bring about with all of these incredible young people. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. I think a, a big part of that podcast is really, it, it's aimed at kids. And I'm, what I'm really trying to do is give young people a platform to, to talk about their experiences, but also to reach other young people and to show kids that like, you don't have to, be a grown-up to make change in the world these kids are doing right. this and they're real kids they're they're not you know like one in a million like these are these are kids who saw something unjust in the world and asked what they could do to change that in their day-to-day -day lives like what they could do in their communities and i i love that and i love giving the opportunity for kids to um, almost mentor other kids and i think that that's really really powerful I bet. And it's got to uh, inform you as well, because you were such a great speaker yourself. We talked about the TEDx event, but you've gone to events all over the place. And you bring mm -hmm. spotlights on such important figures as like Marsha Johnson and Sylvia mm -hmm. Rivera, Harvey Milk, Gilbert Baker. So I'm sure you're kind of learning a lot yourself doing these podcasts to bring to your own speaking. Talk about some of those events that you've gone to and the response you get when you're out on the road, that's got to be kind of fulfilling to you as well, I'd say. Yeah, the immediate response. especially coming from theater, too. I'm so used to having a live audience that uh, kind of going to the digital media world was, was a little um, anticlimactic. <laughs> <to, laughs> I, I, it's, it's 
you want to put it that way, um, in just like, you know, your audience, instead of, you know, becoming real life faces and reactions and laughter and applause, it turns into a number, <laughs> which is, uh, is, is not particularly satisfying because of that. And because of my background in theater and performance, I kind of took uh, over the last couple of years, I took a lot of the material that I generated from queer kids stuff, the songs, um, some of the metaphors, and just kind of the ideas behind the series, and took it into kind of a live performance setting. So I, the last couple of years, I've been traveling all over the country, bringing this family performance to libraries and schools and children's museums and community centers, and doing this thing of trying to spread queer joy and this is kind of the direct action piece of that and I, I absolutely love doing it it's my favorite part of the job honestly um, and it you know satisfies me as a performer but also you know I I do a part of the performance where right before I go into a song about gender I'll ask the audience if they want to share their pronouns with me and you know I get kids who are you know what, like seven, eight, nine, even younger than that, who are sharing, you know, non-binary pronouns, neo-pronouns wow. like Z and Zer, and, uh, you know, maybe even talking about, you know, being trans and using pronouns and maybe how they express at the time. And it's it's just really, really cool. And then usually I'll do um, a little thing where I'll count to three and have everyone shout out their pronouns all at once so it's a little less scary for everyone if they maybe didn't want to share with the whole class. Um, but, yeah, those live performances are, are some of my favorite things, and I'm just uh, in awe of all of the – uh, of the younger generation that's kind of coming up with all of this new kind of knowledge that I didn't have when I was that age. Right. Wow. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And we got to start wrapping up. I want to finish into, yeah. I mean, you do so much on your own already, but let's talk about going into your writing because you're actually right as mm -hmm. well. You have uh, a feature musical that you've gone, uh, started mm -hmm. out. You're, You've done a strip spec for one of those great uh, TV cartoons that I love or the television cartoons. Talk about your writing and what you hope to kind of keep doing in that, because I, I read your first 13 uh, little pages. They're pretty, pretty oh, amazing cool. stuff. I love that. I want to meet Thanks. Ari. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my background is a storyteller. I, I, my background is not as an educator. I kind of stumbled into the educational part of all of this by accident, and I mean, my goal in all of this is to make it, you know, get people understanding that it's important to represent, you know, queer people in children's media. And that's about not just advocating for it, but also creating those stories. So I, I've written a, an animated family musical screenplay feature length, um, and it's essentially the, the queer Disney movie we never had. The main character, Ari, is queer and non-binary. Um, they're kind of a tomboy. It's set. It's a period piece set in the, um, you know, from my background, in early 20th century New York City. Um, they're Jewish immigrants, so kind of talking about an immigrant story here as well. And they come to New York City, uh, Ari's mom and sister um, perish in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And it's all about Ari kind of coming of age and figuring out their gender identity. And they eventually kind of stumble on the construction site for the Empire State Building. And the story really starts there. And we move into 
Ari kind of discovering their gender identity. They fall in love with the governor's daughter. There's a kind of ragtag group of queer people at a underground um, <laughs> women's bar that actually did exist at the time in, 19, in the 1920s. There's intrigue and action, and it's, it's just a really cool story that I'm I'm actually uh, working on producing independently right now and starting to bring some folks on. So if anyone wants to read it, let me know. <laughs> or Congratulations. Oh, that's Thanks. awesome. I love that. And and your writing, it, it's so well done. Talk about Thank what you. made you decide to do a treatment for uh, Steven Universe. I mean, what that, that why that particular one and what's that about? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, I mean, that I mostly did that script for fun. I'm glad you read it. Uh, I mean, I love Steven Universe, and um, <laughs> I think Rebecca Sugar, who's the creator behind it, is just incredible trailblazer. I mean, she was able to, I mean, after many, many episodes, Garnet, um, which is, uh, it's a complicated show, but um, Ruby and Sapphire <laughs> are essentially a, a queer couple who ended up getting married on the show, and this is a show that it's aimed at, you know, uh, I would say like late elementary, like 10 to maybe 13, 14 year olds. And this is the first kind of like real queer representation we've ever had on any kind of children's media. I mean, outside of like, like side characters having two moms and on like one episode or like a background character. And you know, that makes a huge difference that these two characters are part of the main cast. And I, I just I just love the series too. I just think it's brilliant outside of the queer representation. So it's it's really cool to see a show that's so beloved have these like really beautiful storylines. And I I just had fun. I was kind of teaching myself how to script write a little bit and I did a spec script for it, um, where I I um structured the episode around how a queer eye episode actually unfolds. So Steven is kind of like lazy and sad about things in going on in his life. And so the, um, the crystal gems kind of uh, come to him and, and go have him go through like a whole makeover day and, and have him um, get the key to the city from the mayor. So I just, it was kind of a fun little plot to put on it, but uh, I've also recently been getting into She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. That's just an incredible new animated show that's got beautiful queer representation. So just kind of keeping my pulse on what's going on in children's media and where queer, kind of where it can go after, after what has um, happened already and what the future of that industry and looks like, you know. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see where you go with that. Wow. Great. So very cool. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, you're doing such great work, and thank you for all of it, my friend. I'm excited to see oh, what happens next me. year. I appreciate it. Thank you. No thank problem you. at all. Let everyone know where they can find your website, uh, both your personal website, and they can find the videos for uh, the company for uh, Queer Kids Stuff, and where they can find mm-hmm. you on social media. Definitely. So you can find everything related to Queer Kids Stuff at QueerKidsStuff.com. The social channels for that are all at Queer Kids Stuff, um, not Queer Kids Stuff, Queer Kids Stuff. It's also very, very Googleable. Um, my personal website is lindsayamer.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-A is an Apple Y-A-M-E-R. And uh, all of my handles are lindsayamer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. And, uh, yeah, you can find me 
all over the internet on podcasts like this, in interviews, through media, there's the TED Talk, there's plenty of different stuff. There you go. And you got to watch that TED Talk. It was fantastic. Well, Lynn, it's been a major uh, pleasure of mine to be able to share you with my audience. I Hopefully we're all going to learn something here. And you got to come back real soon. I appreciate you. Yeah, of course. Thank you so, so much for having me. This has been wonderful. All right, well, stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to play out to a little music here. We'll be back in just cool. a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network.
All righty, guys. We are back. I hope you enjoyed those interviews as much as I did. Those are all from this week. And uh, great show today, man. Thanks so much to our buddies over at J&J Buzz, Josh and Jeff, for our Pop Culture Minute today. Of course, Ryan Ballas, an amazing filmmaker. And we just spoke with Lindsay Amer. So great show. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you appreciate it. We'll be here the next two days with uh, brand new interviews yet again. Uh, Both days, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Tomorrow, my guests are going to be – oh, I'm very excited about this, too. We're going to start off with our mental health minute. We're having our buddy Jacob Talego, a uh, certified psychologist, coming in to give us a mental health minute, keep us going and steady during this corona craziness here. And then I have two amazing guests. We're going to do – Music Monday on a Thursday. It was so popular last week when we did an extra Music Monday day. We're bringing it back again tomorrow. So Music Monday on a Thursday. If your mind is not blown yet, it will be because I have two, well, two sets of amazing guests. The first one is three guests. We're going to bring on T3. If you've not heard of them yet, they are killing it on all the social media platforms, TikTok especially, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It is three handsome and talented gentlemen, Jim Hogan, Liam Fennekin, and Brendan Jacob Smith. They're all from New York. Two of them are strong Broadway boys. Brendan is a huge singer and was in plays in Ithaca College. Together they've created T3, an acapella group that is just amazing. So we're going to talk with them tomorrow. And then I'm going to bring on Caleb Rudy for the very first time on the show. He is an actor, singer, and songwriter, has a great story to tell, and some fantastic new music just came out. So that is tomorrow, Music Monday on a Thursday, and we'll start off a little mental health minute with our good buddy Jacob Talego. So be sure to tune in for that. And if you missed any episode, remember you can always download it, your favorite podcast distributor, the next day. Guys, I hope you'll be following us on social media uh, at twi- Twitter and Instagram. It's at Left of Straight. That's L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. On Facebook, it's the Left of Straight Show is our Facebook page. And then my personal profile, Scott Fullerton. Send me over a friend request. Also, we have my interns, and they're doing some great, amazing video work and all sorts of fun things on their social media. So follow them as well. They're at Left of Straight Radio. Just add radio to the end of Left of Straight. And you can find them on Instagram, Twitter, and Left of Straight Radio page on Facebook. And they are kind of running our at Left of Straight on TikTok. That's regular at Left of Straight there. So lots of fun. Guys, thanks for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate it. Hope you had a great evening. Uh, We will be back tomorrow and enjoy the rest of your afternoon or evening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.